Well, um, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, our pastor has been uh, leading us in a series on the family. And tonight <coughs> we are going to have kind of an open window into the family matters of one of our minor prophets. This is Hosea. He's um, one of the little bit major minors. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a little bit longer than um, some of the others. And so we're going to take him uh, kind of over the period of uh, two weeks, the next two weeks. But um, I hope that you've been reading in Hosea and um, you should see that uh, the first three chapters are um, a window into his family, into specifically his relationship with his wife and their uh, resulting children. Um, so um, let's go ahead. So, so, the, so here's, so here's this, our little icon. This week our, our plan Isaiah. was to do one through seven. We're probably only going to do one through six um, if we get that far. And But we think the last part is a little bit easier to get through. So we have to spend a little more time on the front end with Hosea and a little less time on the other. So there's Hosea. And uh, here's a spoiler alert. His wife is running away from him. Uh, and to other men. So that's him there. And there she is running away. All right. <laughs> um, just to kind of do an overview of Hosea, and uh, you will probably have discovered this um, as you make your way mm-hmm. through it. Um, the first three chapters are about Hosea's life, his family life, as um, what we call a sign act. And this is something not uncommon in the prophets. Sometimes God asks him to do something that looks a little bit strange um, or, or unexpected. And then God gives kind of an interpretation for, for what that means, what it's like a, a symbol of basically. So um, as we talk about Hosea's marriage and his family life, um, it's it's going to be a little, little bit of, um, uh, we have to be a little bit careful how we look at it as a sign act um, because we don't want to conflate things too, um, I don't know, too exactly uh, so that we come up with the wrong conclusions. So chapters one through three is Hosea's family life. Chapters four and five kind of lay out God's case against Israel with a, a bunch of um, punishments and warnings. Chapters six and seven are uh, some um, like a call to repentance and lament over Israel. Um, Judah also receives some warnings. Chapters 8 and 9 talk a little more about um, the unfaithfulness of God's people and the exile that is going to come as a result. And then um, chapters 10 through 13 is kind of a, a longer section of um, chapters that are full of accusations, judgments, warnings, and especially a warning about uh, death that that is um, impending on them. We do have some glimmers of hope. Um, As we've talked through previous weeks, um, God's compassion is never lacking towards his people. Um, Well, except like in the first chapter that we're going to look at here. But eventually, uh, we'll see how that uh, that is worked out. Um, We have a glimmer of hope in the um, 11th chapter, especially. It's a very significant chapter, and we'll talk some more about that uh, next week in terms of its messianic significance and overtones. 
Um, but chapter 11 really opens up the heart of God for us. And um, I think I think that's actually a very beautiful chapter. Uh, chapter 13 has a couple of spots in it that talk about death and resurrection. And you'll see some verses in there that you also see in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. And then chapter 14, the final chapter, is a call to repentance. And as we've seen in, in the other prophets that we've looked at, there is a promise of restoration um, between uh, God and his people. So I think on to dating issues. Okay, so this is a busy slide, and there are a lot of names and numbers, which can be overwhelming. Um, what's interesting about uh, Hosea, and a little different from some of the other prophets we've seen, is that his ministry goes across a very long period of time and and it seems that what we're seeing in the book of Hosea is not like a single instance where the word of God came to him. He went before, let's say, a king and gave his message and then went home. What we have is a series of sermons or a series of prophetic messages given over a significantly long period of time. As you see there, he says it's during Jeroboam the second of Israel's reign. And then he goes on to list several kings of Judah. I've given you the dates there. Um, the point that is that he doesn't even mention all the kings of Israel who in whose reign he is giving these prophecies, probably because he doesn't see them as having any legitimacy. They're, uh, they're people who took the throne by assassination, intrigue, and force, not uh, by a call of God even upon them. Um, but what we do see is that if he if he did uh, give his prophecies during the reigns of Uzziah all the way to Hezekiah, it, it it's quite possibly it's at least 40 years, probably uh, even longer than that, maybe as, as many as 70 years. And Hosea may have even been around long enough to have seen the fall of Samaria and the deportation or the exile of the northern kingdom into Assyria. Um, and, of course, this is a lot of what he's going to be talking about here. Um, so this is why, just to sort of say, if, if you read through the book, this is why there's a lot of repetition. It seems like he comes back and he repeats himself numerous times throughout the course of the book, and that's because there are probably different different messages given at different times, but they have the same context or the same contents or the same basic message of a call to repentance. All right. So this is where it gets uh, interesting, like from the beginning. So in verse two, basically. Uh -huh. um, so what we see is the, the household of Hosea um, kind of represents the household of Israel. Okay, um, and it, it sets up a oh, metaphor yeah. of um, of a husband with Israel as the cheating wife with um, several children who are produced, maybe one with Hosea, two not with him, um, and these children have symbolic names. So, um, but in verse two, in verse two, you just have this: the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, and he tells him, "Go and marry a woman uh, of questionable character." Right. Some some translations say a harlot. Some say a promiscuous woman. Um, some say prostitute. 
we're, we don't know exactly. I mean, the word it, in ancient Israel, it didn't really make much of a difference, but it's a woman who's evidently uh, sleep, either sleeping around with other men or going to sleep around with other men. And this is, this has been the cause of, uh, of some debate among scholars about whether God told him to marry a woman who was already a prostitute um, or someone who would later become so. Uh, the idea is that some think there's a moral problem uh, with God, you know, with a holy God telling Hosea to go and marry a currently promiscuous woman. But the, the text doesn't give us any indication that she would in the future become promiscuous. And uh, really, I don't think it makes any difference because the overall point is that is that God is using Hosea's very difficult marriage situation, very painful marriage situation, um, as a metaphor for Israel and as a message or a sign for Israel. Um, the important point then is the symbolism of the marriage for Israel and Judah. Um, we're also told Gomer's father's name, um, Diblame. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have made a tried to make a lot out of his name, but we really don't know what it means. Um, it may be etymologically tied to the the word for fruitcake, uh, but I don't think we should make anything of that. Basically, the most important thing about naming her father, I think, is that it shows that she was a real person who had a real family, a real father. These were real people, and these are real events that took place. In other words, Hosea's marriage to Gomer is a real marriage that really took place he really did have the difficulties with his wife and in their marriage that they had. And it's not all just pure allegory and metaphor with no historical significance. Some more liberal commentators have suggested that, but um, there's every indication in the text that these were real people. Right. <clears throat> so, her, so her first child is uh, Jezreel. They have a son. And Jezreel means God plants. And that is important for um, how this name is used um, throughout the book of Hosea. So um, this boy is associated with, or, you know, God puts this, um, this meaning on the name. Um, he's associated with some kind of a, um, a past event of violence or bloodshed, which will be avenged on the house of Jehu. And I think John has... Uh, some information here about the about Jezreel and the Valley of Jezreel. <clears throat> well, okay, so yes, I do. <laughs> so, so it says judgment upon Israel for the sins at Jezreel, and there's there's some confusion here about what that might mean. Um, so, just to refresh our memories of what this is referring back to, who Jehu was, and what happened? Um, so Joram, Ahab, you remember Ahab, the, 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 king, bad king. the bad king of Israel who was married to Jezebel, the bad queen That's who right. was a worshiper of Baal, and they gave, uh, they gave Elijah such a hard time. Um, they sought to kill him, and they were imprisoning the prophets of the Lord and so forth. 
So it was a pretty bad, he was a bad king. He had a bad wife. They had promoted idolatry and there were, um, well, Joram, Ahab's son, he was the current king of Israel. He was killed by Jehu and his body was thrown onto the field at Jezreel. And that was Naboth's land. You might recall Naboth was the man who, uh, you know, owned a vineyard. who owned a vineyard that Ahab wanted. And basically they, the, the, the king's wife paid off somebody to lie about Naboth and he was executed. And then they, they confiscated his land and turned it into their own. And this uh, resulted in a prophecy against Ahab, which was then fulfilled in this way with uh, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, and, uh, and also Joram's mother was also killed there. Ahab's 70 sons were then beheaded by the city officials in Samaria at the, at the instigation of Jehu, uh, who had them sent to him over at Jezreel, and then he piled their heads up uh, into, into like a little pile outside the city gates as a warning and to show that he had taken control. Um, after this, Jehu went to Samaria to claim the throne. When he arrived, he called a solemn assembly for Baal. He said, we're going to have a big celebration for Baal. You think Jezebel was a proponent of Baal. Just wait till you see what I do. Let Make sure everyone who's a prophet of Baal shows up. So they all showed up and he said, make them wear special clothing. This is going to be a big celebration for Baal. And that way they were able to identify them. And then he had them all slaughtered. All of them were killed. It was a trick. All the priests of Baal were uh, slaughtered. He destroyed the sacred pillar there at Samaria, at the capital of the northern kingdom. And he he actually converted the temple of Baal into a public toilet. And we read this in, uh, in 2 Kings 10, verses 28 through 31. And I want to read these few verses because this is what it says. Thus, Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Okay, so this is sort of the summation of this whole story. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is the, the Jeroboam the first. the first, which he made Israel sin. From these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were at Bethel and were at Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But listen to this. In verse 31, it says, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. So the curious, the curious part here then, coming back to Hosea, is that it says there'll be judgment upon Israel for the sins at Jezreel. But what happened at Jezreel was the prophets of you know, the, 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 the sins of the house of Ahab were uh, met upon them by Jehu, and it was right in God's eyes. So what is the sins of Jezreel? Well, probably the fact that Jehu had, um, Jehu had executed judgment, but he had not removed the calves at Bethel and at Dan. 
right? So when we translate this verse four, it says, I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, presumably because Jehu did not learn the lesson of the house of Omri, that is the house that Ahab came from. So while Jehu began with a sort of zeal for the, for the Lord, he and his descendants, that is his descendants after him, did not follow through and they actually ended up allowing idolatry, which is what Hosea was seeing in his day, right? There was still, just like we talked about with Amos, there was still worship of Baal. There were still Ashtoreth poles all throughout the land of Israel on every high hill. And we'll see this language come up later in the story. All right, we made it through five verses. Great. Actually, we're on <laughs> verse four. Because in verse five... Oh, only four. In, uh, well, I, want, I just wanted to point out that in verse 5, Hosea speaks of Israel's military might and warns that it will fall. So you might recall in a previous week, we spoke of the strength of Israel, the northern kingdom, under Jeroboam II when we discussed Amos. Remember we said it, it enlarged the borders of Israel. They, they were uh, quite a force to be reckoned with. And remember, at that time, Assyria's power was waning, as was Egypt's, and Israel was ascending. Um, so it's, uh, it, Hosea even highlights that in verse 5, and he's going to say later, don't depend on your military might over and over again. All right, now we're in verse 6 and 7. All right. So we're now to the second child. <laughs> so the second child is a girl, and um, uh, Hosea is told to name her Lo Ruhama, so a, a symbolic name that means no mercy, no compassion, or basically unloved, if you can imagine uh, naming your child that, unloved. Um, and um, uh, the, the symbolic nature of this is that God says, I'll no longer have compassion, I'll no longer love Israel. My compassion for them um, is, is going to go away because they have been um, unfaithful. Um, and so, um, I want to talk just a little bit about this word for compassion. It's the word raham and it's derived from the word rehem, which means womb. And so, um, just to think about, about the idea of compassion, that, that compassion carries another and other carries them closely. Compassion protects. It's intimately connected to um, caring for another person. Um, and the locus of the closest bond that we have as humans is the bond of the mother and child that comes in the womb. So when God talks about his compassion, it's something that's very, um, um, kind of very, very visceral. And so um, his compassion that he has for Israel now, he is setting that aside because uh, because they have been unfaithful. He says that he has compassion for Judah and they will be uh, saved and they'll be saved by God alone, not by military might. But we will see um, as we go along in Hosea that Judah also comes in for some criticism. So uh, low Ruhama, no compassion. Um, third child is a son. And his symbolic <laughs> name is Lo Ami, which means not my people, or sometimes it might be translated not mine, which, which is significant if this child is actually not um, Hosea's. So, so the parallelism that we have here is that Israel is not God's people, 
and then God says he is not Israel's God. And so this is like a language that, that talks about the breakdown of the covenant because the covenant formula is, you know, you will be my people and I will be your God. And so this is now um, reversed because Israel has violated the covenant. And yet God is faithful. Here's a glimmer of hope. And so then there's this, this little section here that um, kind of looks like uh, there will be some, uh, some restoration, even though Israel is unfaithful, that um, uh, the number of the Israelites there in um, verse 10 uh, will be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or counted. Doesn't that sound like what God said to Abraham? <coughs> um, in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. God will take them back as sons. And there seems to be a promise that Judah and Israel somehow will be reunified one day um, under a single ruler, under a single king. And um, one day they will be called again, the people of God. And one day again, they will experience the compassion of God. So um, God will reverse or heal that broken a covenant and will reunify, kind of reconcile the nation, and they will flourish in the land. And he says, the day of Jezreel, which means planted, will be great. It will be great. And and just recall that uh, Hosea begins his ministry sometime around 30, roughly 30 years, maybe before the northern kingdom goes into exile, right? So this is and he and here he's talking about their returning from exile and and Judah returning from exile and this is 200 years almost 200 years before uh before the southern kingdom is taken into exile and he's talking about them all returning to the land being planted there securely under a single ruler so it's just i i just like to point that out because it brings out some of this fact that he's again speaking you know, in some ways far into the future. And in fact, we would probably say, we would say that a lot of these promises seem to have yet to be fulfilled fully, uh, right? They begin to be fulfilled in Christ uh, in his first advent, but they're yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. All right. So um, in chapter two, we move on to a new oracle. And in this oracle, um, Hosea says uh, on behalf of God, um, he's about to present God's case against Israel. And uh, this is the word reeve. He's presenting his case, his charge against Israel. Um, these are charges and accusations of unfaithfulness. And it, um, it almost looks like the language of, of an impending divorce or at least a, a, a separation. Um, uh, Israel has engaged in um, unfaithfulness and adultery. And um, God says, uh, uh, she is not my wife, my ishti, and I am not her husband, her isha. So it sounds like they're, they're dividing. Did I run ahead? Way ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, I guess not. I guess not. Okay. So, so then, oh, go ahead. Well, I don't know where you are now. Okay. In verse three. Okay. So are you, where are you? Three. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. To go okay. Into the sensitive part. Okay. So in. So in verse three, he talks about, <laughs> we did talk about this beforehand, but I guess <laughs> in verse three, he talks about a threat of exposing her. Um, I would just say one, one thing is a sort of a general comment about reading this ch chapter. 
uh, again, he shifted from talking about Gomer to talking about Israel. So he shifted from Hosea and Gomer's personal relationship to God's charge against Israel. Um, so some of this, it's, it, at this point in Hosea's prophecy, the analogy to his own wife, I think it's, it's difficult to separate. The exposure is not clear, um, right? But when he says there's no compassion on your children, you'll see that the, the language for children talks about both the children and the mother are the same because it's talking about the, the individual people of Israel, but also the nation of Israel. And so there's a lot of movement back and forth between references to the nation and God's posture towards Israel and some veiled references possibly to Hosea and his wife. So we don't want to read too much about what God's saying to Israel uh, as referring to Hosea and Gomer. Right, right. Um, okay, so um, as he's talking about um, about her her punishment and what's going to happen, he talks about um, um, exposing her or making her like a wilderness, um, barren in some way, uh, um, making her slain with thirst like like in the desert, um, and basically showing her vulnerability. Um, the children that are talked about here are um, idolatrous Israelites. Maybe these are Israelites that are born into an idolatrous and syncretistic religion of mixing worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal, which also involved actual ritual prostitution as kind of a, um, a propitiation to the God uh, for agricultural abundance and for rain and for, for lush growth. And so um, when God talks about making her, making Israel a wilderness, it contrasts with the power that's ascribed to Baal, whom, or sorry, to Baal, <laughs> whom they worship as a rain god, um, also a, a storm god, a fertility deity. And so what God wants to say to Israel is that um, he is the one, Yahweh is the one who provides and who supersedes Baal. He's the one who gives the food and the water and the wool and the linen, the oil and the drink. So Israel... Um, worships Baal for these things, not realizing, not recognizing, or the word there is not knowing. It's the word yada that you might have heard before. Not knowing that God is the one who provides the grain and the wine and the oil and the silver and the gold that the Israelites um, use to prepare themselves for worship of Baal and to use in this false worship and maybe in ritual prostitution um, at these fertility shrines. So it's like it's like Israel as God's um, wayward wife has taken the gifts lavished on her by her husband and has gone and lavished them at um, Baal shrines. And so God is going to hinder this false worship and um, is going to take her his gifts away, leaving her therefore vulnerable and in some sense forcing her to recognize him. Okay, um, And he's going to cleanse this worship uh, from her. So these dalliances of adultery slash idolatry are going to be removed from Israel. Um, this fertility worship is going to be overturned. And so um, when the land is mourning, when the land is, is stripped of, um, of all its fruitfulness, there'll be nothing to offer at the shrines because of the natural devastations. Did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, so in... In 
in verses two, it talks about the mother, right? So the nation of Israel. And in verse four, it talks about having no compassion on the children. Again, I had, I, I warn about against too closely reading with Gomer because then it sounds like uh, Hosea is taking out his frustrations with the mother on the children. Uh, I don't think that's the case because again, it's, it's the people themselves who are uh, turning from God, right? In verse five, um, they're giving credit to the God, the other gods, uh, for their wealth or their prosperity, um, right? So the, the nation just is made up of the people. And I think it's, it's interesting because what that does is it speaks to uh, what we might call the concept of corporate or national guilt, which is a concept that sometimes comes up in questions of international relations in politics even today. Uh, just as a, a quick example, you think of who was guilty for bombing Pearl Harbor uh, and bringing the United States into World War II. Well, Japan. Well, did the people bear some guilt for that? Well, yes, because it was the people of Japan who sustained the imperial system uh, that allowed for that to take place. So at, at some level, the people, as well as the nation as a whole, bears guilt for, uh, for its actions. Um, and in verses six through six through eight, so we have God persuading his people, like calling them, patiently seeking to for them to turn back to him. Um, and he thwarts, you know, he thwarts their efforts at performing idolatrous acts. Um, but we're not told exactly how it is that God does this, um, but I suspect uh, it has to do with disasters natural disasters and maybe famine, um, as Stefana said, if there's no grain or there's no animals or there's not an abundance of grain and animals, then the people are going to eat the grain and the animals to, keep, to sustain their own lives, not to use them for false sacrifices and offerings. Um, and I would also say this in, in uh, uh, verse 8 when it says the people didn't know um, so there's a measure of ignorance there. Uh, they didn't know it was I who gave it to her, but this is no excuse for the guilt that they still bear. In other words, ignorance is not uh, an excuse. Um, so in, um, in verses 9 through 13, we have uh, the, the promise of restoration. And this is quite interesting because it really goes to the, you know, to the end of the chapter, but um, it must include cleansing of faith, a cleansing of the faith of, of all syncretism. And I'll let Stefana speak about the verse 14. Well, um, I think it's just very heartrending as you come, you know, down the sort of catalog of offenses um, that there's just the low, very low point for God as he's, you know, um, uh, he, he's forgotten in the end. <laughs> he's unappreciated, unacknowledged. And in the end, uh, Israel goes after her lovers and forgot me. And then there's this, therefore, that seems like a big judgment is now coming. This is going to be um, the, the penalty. This is going to be now the verdict. And so, Instead of what is expected, God, who is the forsaken and wronged husband, now does the unexpected. He forgives. 
he allures, he rekindles the relationship. This part is just so beautiful. He rekindles the relationship. He speaks tenderly um, to, to, his, uh, to his wife. Um, the word is liba, and it's from the word leb, which means heart. He speaks tenderly to her heart. He, he restores um, her vines. He restores the wine that comes from them. He, um, he makes, it says, the valley of Akor will signify hope for her. Um, the valley of Akor means trouble, the valley of trouble. And that's where, um, that's where Achan was stoned. If you remember, as soon as they came into the promised land, you know, just shortly after they came out of the wilderness, that was like the doorway to the promised land. And this horrible thing happened where Achan and his whole family were stoned because they stole. They took what, what they should not have. And God is saying, there's going to be like a do-over, you know, I'll, I'll allure her to me. We'll be like we were in the wilderness. She'll be faithful to me. Um, entering back into the land uh, will signify hope and not doom. And so um, uh, she is, uh, she is coming back to him and faith between them would be restored. Um, as after the Exodus, God related to his people caring for them in the wilderness. And so in that day, it, here comes a, a, a promise of hope. Okay, but there has to be there has to be a um, a a complete turning from their false worship, right? Uh, so I've written there a cleansing of syncretism. They need to remove all ties that the worship of the Lord in Israel has with false worship. You remember we said this uh, when we talked about Amos and maybe some others that. Uh, oftentimes what was taking place in, uh, in ancient Israel, especially in the north, but also in, in the south later, is that they were mixing their worship of the Lord with these, these pagan practices and, uh, and worship of other gods. In fact, they were even possibly borrowing terms from the Canaanite religions. So we have a play on words here in verse uh, 16, where it says, uh, you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. Um, so the word Ish uh, means, uh, can be man in, in Hebrew or husband, um, translated. Well, also the word Baal, as we know, is the name of the Canaanite fertility god, the deity, right? But it also was used, the word Baal, was used generically, or it seems to have been used generically as sort of Lord, um, or could also be used for husband, like a wife might call her husband Lord. <laughs> Don't wait for it. <laughs> but uh, back in back in the olden in day, the day. way, way, way back then. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but in the same way then, they may, they, the Canaanite wives might have called their husbands Baal. Uh, like little b Baal. Um, and so here there's this play on words here. So Baal, um, it doesn't mean just husband in the way that God means husband. Um, it also, it means Lord, master, or owner, or husband. You know, so it's... Right, it, that's it's, what I said. It's, it's different. Yes, exactly. Like a wife would address her husband. Yeah, okay, moving on. <laughs> and so... <laughs> yes, that's right. well, we'll a long see time that. ago. So, um, so what we see is that even the name of the adulterous lover 
uh, needs to be wiped out, that it will no longer be spoken. It won't even be a name on her lips. So um, in reality, what, what we see here with Baal uh, being viewed as, um, as, an, as a husband, that as Israel sinned in its idolatry, attracted by it either for survival, like agricultural survival, or for pleasure, in reality, it becomes enslaving. Um, and God says um, that these Baals will no longer be remembered in contrast to how God was not remembered by Israel. Now Israel is going to forget uh, these, um, uh, these foreign deities. Uh, and so we've got a kind of a covenant renewal in um, Edenic imagery mm -hmm. that comes up. Oh, did I run too Which fast? we're going to... We're going to come to in just a moment. Okay. But um, in verse, so in verse 17, like Stefana said, you have to actually remove the term Baal. Like you will no longer hear it. You should no longer speak it. Don't utter it anymore. And uh, so the, I guess the, the point, or I think the important point that we should we take out of this is that, is that words have meaning, right? And, um, and they're, um, that, that they, they, it matters how we speak about God, uh, and how we speak rightly. So many of you know, I, I used to teach systematic theology and when I would teach theology, I would, I would often point out to my students at the beginning of the, the course of classes, I would say, you know, a lot of this that we're going to study you already know, because we, we learn theology in church, right? The gospel is grounded in theology. When we, what do we believe uh, about the gospel? Well, that Jesus was God incarnate, that he, you know, he lived a sinless life, that he died for our sins, etc. All of that is theology. But, uh, but, but what we, what we study in theology also is sort of technical understanding of what we mean, you know, the precision of language language and terms so that so that we don't lead people astray when we share the gospel with them or when we teach our Sunday school classes. And Hosea's point here is that proper, true, heartfelt worship must be grounded in God's truth, right? In God's truth, uh, as God has revealed it, not in man-made ideas about God or not in ideas that have been accommodated to human standards or culture that involves alteration. And I thought, you know, one example of this is uh, analogy to how we speak of God in, uh, in uh, modern day, right? So Islam exists and uh, they refer to God as Allah. Now the word Allah is the Arabic word for God, like just the generic word for God. But they also use Allah to refer to their primary or their only deity, which I would argue is not the same as the Christian God because they deny the Trinity, right? So this raises some interesting questions for, for example, sharing the gospel, right? Is it okay to say Allah when we talk about the God of the Bible? Or do we want, or should we use more specific terms, like maybe say Yahweh or something like that, or find a different term to, dis to make the distinction between 
Allah and the God of the Bible, the true God, the triune God. Um, these are interesting questions that come up in missiology and the study of missions, right? When we think about sharing our faith with people of other cultures or other religions, right? Um, because we, what we don't want to do, I'm going to back it up a bit here, is we don't want to be involved in confusing people and saying, well, our religions are just the same or they're basically the same because the worship of Baal uh, had taken over the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, the true Lord in Israel, because they were mixing the worship of Baal with the worship of God. So it raises some interesting questions, at least. Well, we have to remove Baal from the language in Israel. All right. All right. So, um, so picking up then with um, verse 18, uh, we have here a renewed covenant uh, in the context of a renewed creation, though, as he talks about the animals, the birds of the sky, the creatures on the ground, um, there will be a peaceful world. Uh, war will be, uh, will be gone from the land. And in, in that context, which is kind of like a, an Eden sort of context, um, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I, this is repeated three times. I'll betroth you in a covenant. What kind of covenant? a covenant of righteousness and justice. We've seen these two together in Amos as well, and in some of the other books we did too. And also a covenant of love and compassion. And here, love is the word hesed, which is God's covenant love that appears a lot in the Psalms. And then for compassion, it's the word rahamim, which is from lo rahama. We've seen this before, compassion. So the compassion now is, uh, is going to be restored and it's going to be renewed. The third phrase, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And from this kind of threefold um, betrothal, uh, he says, therefore, you shall know Yahweh. So this is like a, a, a do-over. This is like a, I don't know, like a vow renewal kind of ceremony as contrasted to where we started out in the book. And so uh, he says, on that day. On that day, God will set things right. He will fulfill his covenant with all things, the sky, the earth, the crops. Um, maybe this is a reference to um, uh, the, the rain coming on the earth and producing the crops. It's like another sort of backhanded comment about Baal uh, because God is the one who does that. Um, and then there's this reversal, too, of the negativity associated with Jezreel and Ruhama and Ami, you see? So Jezreel will be planted again um uh there will be a restoration of compassion to um ruhama and there will be um a restoration of god's covenant with his people their relationship i will say to not my people you are my people and there will be a response at that time as there has not been there will be a response and he will say you are my God. So we've come full circle now back to the restoration of um, the covenant, uh, covenant language. So all things now will be renewed and restored. All right. So it looks like um, in the next chapter that Hosea uh, is told to uh, go and get Gomer, who had gotten herself in trouble. Maybe she'd become enslaved by debts of some kind. And um, it's, it's a picture of um, the ransom, the redemption of undeserving Israel by their loving God who comes to, um, to, to take them back, to pay for them. 
and to take them back even when they don't deserve it. So he, he goes and he pays a price for her, um, depending on your translation, but something like 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. It's actually one homer barley and a, I forget the other term, but a telic or something of barley. We don't know how much this was. Um, so you, I've, I mean, I've heard people say it was full price. It was price and a half for what you would pay for a slave on the market. Um, some commentators have said that. Other commentators say we have no idea. Um, so I just say he paid a price for her and and bought her back. Um, there, there is a, a good bit of question as to why he had to purchase her. Uh, some scholars think it was a different person, but it's doubtful that that's the case because of the symbolism would all be lost. So we think he's going and restoring Gomer. Um, so the other question is, why would he have to go purchase her if, he's his, if that's his wife, right? Well, some think he put her out of the house, uh, maybe uh, kicked her out, but didn't divorce her. Other people think he divorced her. Um, the, the, the language allows for both. Um, there is a bit of a problem with divorce because the Torah, you might remember this, the, the Old Testament law doesn't allow a man to take back a wife that he divorced if she goes off and marries another. That's in Deuteronomy 24. Um, but this would only be problematic if his purchase of Gomer is from a new husband, which is doubtful because Hebrew law didn't allow for buying and selling wives. It's not like they did that. So it, it may be the case that what happened was he kicked her out of the house and she sold herself into some kind of indentured servitude of some sort in order to make ends meet. And um, certainly that is possible. And then, uh, so he goes and buys her back uh, and brings her into his home. Um, but divorce is there is present. So it, it's, it's a difficult it can be a challenge for us regarding how we understand what the Bible says about divorce and divorce and remarriage. I would just say we shouldn't read too much into Hosea as being prescriptive when we have other teaching elsewhere in the Bible to, that's more direct teaching on the issue. Um, so the key point then is that he's going to bring her back in, and it's, it requires uh, a plan for reconciliation, a plan for reconciliation um, that there's there are conditions placed on the rest the, the full restoration of their marriage and the little reference there to raisin cakes I just thought you might want to know it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go out and, and buy like raisin uh, cinnamon raisin French toast or anything like that um, but we we know from mm -hmm. um, we know from um, let's see it's uh, verse sorry, verse one, says they love raisin cakes. Um, so we know from excavations in a Babylonian city called um, Mari that has a palace uh, from their kitchens. We know that um, people used to make little sort of ritual uh, cakes with raisins and dates and things like that uh, to bring food offerings to the shrines. So um, so that, that's what it's referring to there. And later it's going to talk about, um, it's going to talk again about, uh, about little cakes. I think we should Okay, the, uh, the last thing I guess I would say about the purchasing of Gomer is that uh, there is some comparison to the gospel here. Um, so let's, uh, let's just 
outline that real quick. So the offended party pays the price for the offender, right? You see that with Hosea is the offended party. He pays the price to redeem the offender. Uh, it may be the case, right, depending on how much he paid, we're not sure, but it may be the case that the offended party is paying more than he needed to pay to redeem the offender, right? Which is, of course, what Christ did for us. He paid paid, uh, with his blood that was more than sufficient to pay for our sins. Um, And there is some kind of repentance required as part of the redemption, which, of course, would go well with our proclamation that uh, salvation is freely given and freely offered if we turn to the Lord. And of course, turning to the Lord in faith includes turning from our sins. Um, Well, in uh, chapter three, verses four and five, verses four and five, it does clearly speak to exile because there's a lack of temple style worship. And, but in verse five, again, we're told there's going to be Turn and they can they can return and seek the Lord and they will have David their king is a reference there to the messianic return which will come up later as well. I think we're we're I think since we're out of time we're just going to leave it here at the end of chapter three and I hope you got the idea that these these first three chapters really are. Um, Setting the foundation. Um, yeah, really. Yes, for for the book, and have um, lots and lots of issues <laughs> that we can uh, kind of uh, pick through them. But uh, does anybody have any questions that they'd like to ask about about these first three chapters, or um, or, or after? I just want to leave you with uh, just reemphasizing the pattern of even though God, um, when He is offended, that covenant um, unfaithfulness requires um, judgment and punishment, that his compassion is never absent, that God's love for his people is never absent. He doesn't want them to be unfaithful, but he, he doesn't want to, to punish. He doesn't want them to um, go astray. He doesn't want them to be hurt. You know, he doesn't want them to sell themselves into idolatrous slavery. Um, and so I think it's just important to sort of keep sight of that. And anybody who tells you, you know, the Old Testament God is just vengeful and mean, that's not true. And you can point right here to Hosea, not just in the part that we covered, but even more is going to be uh, coming up in the next several chapters. All right. Well, we'll ask Pastor Chris to take it over. <laughs> That was good. Thank you, guys. Excellent study tonight. Thank you all for your uh, faithful attendance and participation. This has been an encouraging time from afar. Um, well, let's bow and let's uh, turn to the Lord and close out our time in prayer. Father, as we've been reminded of tonight, you are a God who is patient with us. Uh, Lord, you uh, are compassionate and merciful. Lord, you have uh, treated us uh, far better than we deserve. Uh, Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your character, your mercy. Uh, Lord, you are a God who is uh, righteous and just, uh, and yet you're the one who has justified us through your Son, our Savior. Uh, Father, as we um, as we scatter tonight, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we would continue uh, seeking you and serving you. Uh, Lord, that your word, that your truth, that your love would be uh, upon our hearts, be on our minds. Father, we pray that you would impress it upon us and that we would walk in it. 
uh, for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.